Well, I have to tell you, I'm uh, looking forward very much to the next two weeks of our study in Daniel. Uh, As a preview, next week we're going to be in chapter 9, where Daniel's going to teach us a whole lot about prayer and fasting, and we're going to follow that up by kicking off a month of prayer and fasting as a church. So you're going to want to be here next Sunday. We're also going to partake in communion, so it's going to be a very special uh, and important day. That said, I'm also excited to study Daniel 8 with you this morning, as it addresses something I'm convinced we really need to grow in. In fact, it might be the thing that we need to grow in the most right now. If you're following along in our Bible reading plan, and uh, if not, I would encourage you to do that. Go onto our app or to our website, get that reading plan, follow along. But if you are following along, you read Daniel 8 a couple of times this week, and I'm guessing that while you probably found it pretty interesting, you, you may have come away thinking, what in the world does this have to do with us today? I mean, how, how am I going to apply this uh, to my life? Well, I just want to tell you that Daniel 8 does apply, and here's how. You see, it has an important message about the need for us as God's people to stand in perseverance. Daniel 8 is all about standing and perseverance. There's a quote that's often been attributed on social media to Winston Churchill that goes like this. Success isn't final. Failure isn't fatal. It's the courage that counts. It's the courage that, to continue that counts. Now, according to fact checkers, this quote is falsely attributed to Churchill. Apparently, because Churchill was so quotable, it's been pretty uh, common uh, these days for people to attribute quotes to him that he actually didn't say. And I know how some of you love those fact checkers. And I know because I've seen quotes by you on social media. But regardless if Quote Hill actually said this or not, today in Daniel 8, we're going to see the truth of this statement. That any one time in our lives, success isn't final, failure isn't fatal. It's the courage to continue. It's the courage to stand in perseverance that counts. Let's take a look at how Daniel 8 shows us this. So if you aren't already there, please get there quickly. Last week in chapter 7, we saw the first of four visions Daniel receives in the last six chapters of the book. Visions which foretell events uh, that happen in the future, up to and including uh, the end times. And the vision in chapter 7 is a big picture vision. It's pretty much the all of history vision from beginning to end. The vision in chapter 8, however, covers a much shorter time period from around 550 B.C., which is when Daniel receives the vision up to about 170 BC. So 550 BC to 170 BC, that's the the time period this vision deals with. By the way, one of the side benefits of the vision we're gonna study today is that it really verifies the reliability of scripture. We're we're gonna see uh, God giving Daniel a vision of events that we can go today and verify actually happen. With that said, let's pick up in verse one, uh, which tells us this. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, 
which is in the province of Elam, and I saw in the vision, and I was at the Uli uh, Canal. This vision occurs two years after the vision in chapter seven. That was in the first year of Belshazzar. This is in the third year of Belshazzar. And in this vision, Daniel sees himself in Susa, which is the capital of Persia. Now that should strike a chord because remember we learned in chapter five that it's the Medes and the Persians that are gonna conquer the Babylonian empire. So Daniel's not actually in Persia, but he's seen himself in the Persian capital. And he sees himself there. He sees some other things. Verse three, I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. First thing that Daniel sees is a ram with two horns, one of the horns a little bit taller than the other. Now, we learned last week that beasts, animals represent kings and kingdoms, and so do their horns. So what Daniel is being told here is that there's going to be a kingdom that's going to rise from the east and it's going to conquer the world. Now, a little bit of geography for you. In, in modern day, we're talking about Iran and Iraq. So Babylon is in modern day Iraq. Persia, Susa is in modern day Iran. Iran is east of Iraq. Daniel is in Iraq. He sees this ram coming from the east, which should tell you what this vision is going to mean. We'll see the interpretation in a little bit, but we should be getting a hint here. The main thing that we need to see in these verses, however, is the word great in verse four. This word is going to be used repeatedly in this vision to describe the kings and kingdoms. So we need to watch out for it. It's a key word in this vision. And the word has the normal meaning of significant or um, substantial, but it also means to exalt oneself. So whenever we see this word, note that we're being told that these kings and kingdoms, yes, they're, they're great and that they're significant, but they're also exalting themselves. They're magnifying themselves. They're puffing out their chest. They're saying, look at how great we are. Let's move on to verse five, where Daniel sees another animal come on the scene. As I was considering, behold, a male goat. So a he-goat came from the west this time, across the face of the whole earth, without touching the ground. That means that it's really, really fast, really, really speedy. It happens quickly. So the picture I get here is of Roadrunner. Remember Roadrunner? He just moves so fast that all you see is the dust coming up. Doesn't even look like he's touching the ground. That's the picture here. So, so there's a male goat moving really, really fast. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. So he's also a unicorn, all right? So we've got a Roadrunner goat unicorn. You got the picture? And remember the horns represent kings. It's a conspicuous horn, conspicuous king. And this goat with a horn... Verse six says, comes to the ram with two horns. And which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him close to the ram and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, 
And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. So the king represented by the ram is going to be conquered by the king represented by the goat. So if you remember the Super Bowl two years ago where the New England Patriots led by the goat, Tom Brady, defeated the Los Angeles Rams, all right? Does that work for you? For some of you? Some of you it doesn't? All right, whatever. That's what's going on here, all right? The goat is defeating the ram, smashing the ram to bit. And this goat kingdom is going to come from the west, and he'll be led by a king that will be conspicuous or easy to identify. And he'll be easy to identify because he is exceedingly great. However, at the height of his kingdom, at the height of his power, he will be broken, and then his kingdom will be split into fourths. Now, as intriguing as this is, Daniel's vision is primarily about what happens next. So look at verse 9. Out of one of them, So this is one of those four kingdoms that came from the big horn of the goat. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. What's the glorious land? It's the promised land. It's Israel. So this one king that's coming out of the goat kingdom is going to go great, grow great, really exert dominion over Israel. Israel. Verse 10 tells us this, it grew great even to the host of heaven. And some of the hosts and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him. That's the prince of the host. And the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over it together with a regular burnt offering because of transgression, and it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. So all of this has to do with what this little horn, this king, is going to do in and to Israel. This king from the goat empire will exalt himself against God, that's the prince of hosts, and he will do so primarily by assaulting God's people. He's going to attack them, prevent them from worshiping God, desecrate the temple, and in general, throw truth into the ground, or as we might put it, drag truth through the mud. The main thing we need to see here, however, is why this is going to happen. So this is a key right here, what we're going to talk about now, to not only interpreting the vision, but also to applying it. Why Is this all going to happen? Well, verse 12 tells us that it's going to happen because of transgression. Why is this desolation to God's people, to God's temple, to the worship of God? Why is this going to succeed? Why is it going to prosper? Why is it going to happen? Because of transgression. The transgression of God's people. God's people have rebelled against him, and so this is all coming upon them. Now, It's hard for us to imagine how this must have affected Daniel. He had to be absolutely horrified to see this because what has he seen? He's seen the absolute destruction and desolation of pretty much everything that he holds dear. His people, his home, and that temple that he had been praying to for now 80 years. It's all, in effect, ruin. However, there's actually a hint of good news coming because Daniel's going to hear something. He's actually going to overhear 
a conversation between two angels. He's kind of going to eavesdrop on him. And in this conversation, there's a hint of good news. So look at verse 13. Daniel says that he hears this. I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, for how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. In this dialogue, Daniel learns that while this king is going to prosper against God and his people, for a time, it will be a limited time, but then the temple and therefore the truth and the worship of God will be restored. So that's the vision. But of course, we probably got questions, and you know what? So did Daniel. So what we're going to see in the rest of the chapters, we're going to see Daniel getting the interpretation. Daniel wants to understand what all this means, and so God once again obliges and gives him the interpretation. So look at what happens in verse 15. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it, and behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli. And it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O man, that the vision is for the time of the end. So Daniel, still in the vision, he's still seeing himself, and he's trying to figure out what all this means, and he's trying to figure out what it means, he hears this voice. Now, the implication is this voice is actually God, and God speaks and tells Gabriel to give Daniel the interpretation. Now, who is Daniel, or who is Gabriel? Well, Gabriel is one of God's angels. He's one of three angels that are mentioned in the Bible. Do you know who the other two are? Specifically named, two other angels. One is Michael, the archangel, who we're gonna see in a couple of weeks. We're gonna talk a lot more about him. And the other is Lucifer or Satan. Lucifer or Satan. Now, Satan's not named in Daniel, but his presence is all over the place, specifically here in chapter eight. We're gonna come back to him in a moment, but first of all, let's talk about Gabriel. Gabriel is the angel who is the messenger of God. So when uh, Gabriel shows up, Gabriel comes to deliver messages, and they are always messages of good news. So so when you see Gabriel, it's a good day. It's a really, really good day. For example, in Luke chapter one, Gabriel shows up to a man named Zechariah and gives him the good news of the impending birth of John the Baptist. A short while later, he appears to Mary and gives her the even better news of the impending birth of who? Jesus. Here, He's also delivering some good news. There's hard news, of course, but there's also some good news. And the good news is that this desolation is going to come to an end. It's gonna come to an end. You see the end here that Gabriel is talking about, that this vision is about, it's actually not the end times. There's many people who interpret it that way. But the problem is, is that that's not the way to understand it in context. We have to understand this word end in context. And the, the end here, specifically talking about the end of the rebellion of God's people, and therefore the end of the desolation of the temple, and the end of the time before the temple is going to be restored. 
It's the end of these 2,300 evenings and mornings. Now, by the way, uh, there's all kinds of disagreements and argues and debates about how long this 2,300 days is. I don't, I'm not gonna get into it and I don't care, all right? There's lots of people you could read about that because it really doesn't matter to us today. The point is, is that this desolation is only going to happen for a limited amount of time. That is the point. God's gonna allow it to happen for a little bit of time, but then he is going to restore his people. This will become clear as Gabriel further explains the vision. So look at verse 18. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation. That's referring to God's really wrath, his anger. For it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. Here's where we can see the reliability of scripture. History tells us that the Medes and the Persians conquered the Babylonians, and then the Greeks came and conquered the Medes and the Persians. Now, I'm not talking about Bible history, although it's in the Bible as well. I'm just talking about history, period. You can go to the history books. In fact, you just go to Wikipedia right now, and you can see that these things actually took place. And the first king of the Greek empire was the greatest king, a very famous king that we know as Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great became a general in the Greek army at the age of 21. He essentially conquered the entire world, including the Medes and the Persians by the time he was 26. But then he died at the age of 33. So he came on quickly, conquered the world, but then when he became strong, he died. And when he died, guess what happened? His kingdom was split in force. Four of his generals took up over four different parts of the kingdom. Exactly as God tells Daniel hundreds of years before it actually happened. Now, what's interesting about this vision, though, is the focus isn't actually on Alexander the Great. He just gets a passing comment. Alexander the Great is one of the most influential figures in all of history, but instead the focus is on one of the kings that will eventually come from his splintered kingdom. And before we talk about this king, let me tell you why he is the focus of the vision instead of Alexander. And his reason that he is the focus is because of his relationship to God's people. You see, while Alexander might be more important in man's eyes, this other king is actually more important in God's eyes. And that's because what God is most concerned about in history is his people. Isn't that actually and encouraging and comforting truth uh, to us, that God actually isn't primarily concerned with the state of nations. He's primarily concerned with the state of his people, and he's always going to make sure that his people are taken care of. That's one of the things that we learn here um, in this story. 
So let's now look at what Gabriel tells Daniel about this last king. Look at verse 23. And at the latter end of their kingdom, this is the Greek kingdom, these four different kingdoms, at the the end of it, when the transgressors have reached their limit, in other words, God's people have sinned to the max and rebelled against him and his patience is over, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand and in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision for it refers to many days from now. So let's talk about this king. History identifies him as a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. Now his actual name was Antiochus IV, but he gave himself the nickname Epiphanes because it means God made manifest. So even in his name that he chooses from himself, he is exalting himself against God. He is really assaulting and attacking God. Through intrigue, again, and this is history. This is, I'm not not giving you this from the Bible, all right? But through, um, through intrigue, in 175 BC, Antiochus became king of the Seleucid Empire, one of the four kingdoms that emerged after Alexander the Great's death. During this time, Israel was a part of the Seleucid Empire, and when he took over, one of the first things that Antiochus did is he appointed his own high priest in Jerusalem so that that high priest would do his bidding. One of the things that Alexander the Great, uh, I'm sorry, but really Alexander the Great did it too, but Antiochus, his kind of method of operation was to try to uh, unite his kingdom by uh, installing a really a Greek culture on the entire kingdom. So he tried to do that in Israel as well. One of the ways that he did this is by putting his own high priest um, in place. However, the faithful Jews, those who were still faithful to God, there were some still left, they didn't like this one bit. So when they heard a rumor that Antiochus had been killed, they actually reinstalled the genuine, the real high priest. Unfortunately, Antiochus was still very much alive. And so in retribution, in 169 BC, he viciously attacked Jerusalem and executed 40,000 Jews within a span of three days. He also entered the Holy of Holies, sacrificed a pig on the altar, and then looted the temple. Now, that's bad, right? But it gets even worse because two years later, after the uh, Romans had really prevented him from extending his realm into Egypt, he came back to Jerusalem and vented his frustration on the Jews by attacking them on the Sabbath and massacring almost the entire population. He then banned all Jewish worship, prohibited circumcision, and dedicated the temple to Zeus. In addition, under the penalty of death, he ordered the Jews to sacrifice pigs to greet gods. Basically, he attempted to force the Jews to become pagans, and if you refused, you were killed. In the words of Daniel 8, Antiochus caused fearful destruction and sought to destroy the people who were the saints. However, God did not allow this to go on for long. In fact, for only around 2,300 evenings and mornings. You see, in 166 BC, a man by the name of Judas Maccabees 
led a Jewish guerrilla rebellion that eventually was able to retake Jerusalem from Antiochus. And when they did that, they immediately reinstituted the temple observances and the worship of God. 2,200 years later, so today, Jews still celebrate this victory every year in a celebration that we know as Hanukkah, the festival of lights. They're still celebrating what God had predicted would happen 2,600 years ago. As for Antiochus, short time after this, he died of a mysterious, excruciatingly painful disease. A mysterious, painful disease. In other words, he was broke by no human hand. And all of this goes to show that history proves exactly what Daniel's vision reveals. At the end of the Greek empire, one of their kings savagely persecuted the Jews for a short time, but at the end, God broke him and restored his people. So that leaves us to ask, what does this have to do for us? What does this have to do with us? How are we supposed to apply this part of scripture? So we've seen that it teaches us the reliability of scripture, but is there anything else for us in this? And I believe there is a lot for us in this. Let me give you three things today. First of all, this vision reveals that sin brings suffering. Sin brings suffering. Why do God's people experience such great suffering in Daniel's vision? Well, it's clear by the repeated use of the words transgression and transgressors that it's in part because of their sin, because they have turned away from God. Therefore, one important lesson we need to learn from Daniel 8 is that when we choose to sin, we choose to suffer. When we choose to sin, when we choose to suffer. Now, I'm not saying that every time we suffer, it's because of our sin, but what I am saying is that if we make the choice to sin, it will inevitably lead to suffering. I'm not gonna belabor this point other than to say this, other than really to ask you this. Is there any area of your life where you are currently choosing to sin? Is there any area of your life where you are deliberately disobeying God? If so, I wanna tell you this one, you need to realize two things. A, you need to realize that suffering is coming. Suffering is coming. Now, it, it might not be coming today and it might not be coming tomorrow, but I can promise you that it is coming. Whenever we sin, we are going to suffer. Sin always brings suffering. Now, we need to recognize that sin is fun. It's fun, right? Can we all admit that today? Now, growing up, I was kind of given the idea that, that sin wasn't fun, sin was miserable, but, but then I sinned and I learned that that actually wasn't true, it actually was fun, right? You, you've all had the same experience? Come on, Fred. Right? Sin is fun, but it's only fun for a season. You see, eventually the fun of sin turns into the suffering of sin, and that's because sin always brings death, emotional death, relational death, physical death, and most of all, spiritual death. So that's the first thing that you need to realize. When you choose to sin, you're choosing to suffer. But here's something else you need to realize. B, you need to realize that God's merciful 
and gracious, and if you repent, he will forgive and heal you. I love Psalm 103, which says, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. I know as your pastor that many of you need to hear both of these things right now. Many of you need to hear these things right now because many of you are choosing to sin. Now, you might not want to to admit that to anybody else or even to yourself, but you know in your heart there are areas, there are places in your life where you are rebelling against God. I know rebel sounds like such a terrible, uh, terrible word, but that's what, what you're doing. You're choosing to do your own thing. And I just have to warn you today that in making that choice, you are actually choosing to suffer. It's coming your way. Now, at the same time, what you need to know is that if you are suffering or you're on the way to suffering, all that you need to do is repent. You need to turn to God and ask him for forgiveness. And guess what he will do? Always. Always, he will forgive you and begin the process of healing. So, so our temptation is when we're sinning and we begin to feel that suffering, what do we tend to do? We tend to run away from God. When what, what, what should we do? We should actually run to him. Why? Because he's merciful. He is gracious. He is compassionate. He is tenderly loving. And he wants to welcome us in and to forgive us and to heal us. That is God. Did you know that God's heart is, is, is not hard to, to you? Did, did you know that? Do you know that it's soft and it's tender and he just wants to embrace you, wants to take you in his arms and love you and forgive you and heal you and restore you? That's what he wants. And the only thing that's keeping that from happening is your, refusing, your refusal to repent. All you have to do is turn to him. So if you're choosing to sin... You're choosing to suffer, but that's not the way that it has to be. And all that it takes is a step back in his direction. Here's the second thing Daniel's vision reveals, and that's that Satan brings suffering. Satan brings suffering. Sometimes we suffer because of sin, but at other times we suffer because of Satan. The language in this vision is meant to show us that there's always an invisible spiritual battle going on behind the scenes. It's a battle between light and dark. It's a battle between God and Satan. However, since Satan doesn't dare attack God directly, what's his battle plan? He attacks God by attacking God's people. That's one of the points here, is that Satan's behind these attacks by Antiochus, and it is an attack on God, but it's an attack on God by attacking his people. So this means that while today you might be suffering because you've sinned, because you're doing something wrong, you also might be suffering because you're doing something right. All right? Your your suffering might be because of your sin, but it also might be because you are doing something right. 
You might be suffering because you're faithfully following God and therefore Satan has put a contract out on you. Just consider Daniel for a second. From all that we can tell, Daniel was a faithful, godly man his entire life. Eight plus decades of his life and yet for the entirety of his life, he suffered. He suffered greatly. And why did he suffer greatly? Well, in big part, in large part, it's because of Satan's attacks. I'm gonna give a personal example here, but uh, in doing so, I'm in no way comparing myself to Daniel really in any way, least in the way that I have suffered. Because uh, compared to Daniel, my life has been a piece of cake. I also wanna say that a good deal of the suffering I've experienced is because I have chosen to sin. Over and over, I've chosen to sin, and so I've learned the hard way that I've also chosen to suffer. With that said, though, I found a direct relationship between how much I suffer and how much I follow Jesus. And the relationship is this, is the more I follow Jesus, the harder I follow Jesus, the more faithfully I follow Jesus, the more that I suffer. Contrary to what the prosperity teachers will tell you, there is a direct relationship between how much you suffer and how much you follow Jesus. And how much you follow Jesus means that you will suffer more and more and more. Now I realize that this is probably not the best way to motivate you to follow Jesus. <laughs> Especially in America in 2021, right? Where we want nothing to do with suffering, where we want to be comfortable, where we believe that it's our born right to pursue life, liberty, and happiness, and that's what life is about. But let me tell you what motivates me to follow Jesus in the midst of suffering, and even though it causes more suffering, it's these words from the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 where he says this, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now, let's leave this up here for a second because when we read this verse, we're like, Paul has no idea what he's talking about, right? My suffering isn't light. In fact, it's really, really, really heavy. But we have to remember who's talking here. Who's talking here is the guy who was repeatedly stoned, beaten to death, left for dead, imprisoned, and on and on and on it goes. And yet he says that his suffering is light. What in the world is he talking about? Well, he's talking about the fact that in comparison to the weight of glory, the reward in heaven that his suffering is producing for him, what he is going through in this lifetime is really nothing compared to that eternal weight of glory. So, so here's what Paul is telling his friends. He, he is telling us the more that we suffer for Christ in this life, the greater our reward will be in heaven. Again, we don't like to suffer, right? We don't want anything to do with it. But, but listen, suffering is a part of the Christian life. We saw this last week, right, in Timothy where Paul told Timothy, all who are godly will be persecuted. And the reason that we will be persecuted is we are simply following in the steps of Jesus. And if we are walking in the steps of Jesus, then we are gonna suffer like he suffered. And we've got to stop looking at that as a bad thing and looking at that instead as one of the best things possible. Now, I'm not expecting an overwhelming response from this, okay? 
But the point is, listen, we're going to suffer in this life if we want to follow Jesus. And if we turn away from that suffering, guess what that means? It means we ain't gonna be following Jesus. And if we're not following Jesus, then we shouldn't expect that eternity is gonna be great for us. Because suffering is a part of following him. Conversely, what should motivate us to embrace the suffering that we face in life? What should motivate us is the knowledge, is the understanding that if we faithfully follow Jesus in the midst of that suffering, which, which by the way, I say this to you all the time, how long is our suffering in this life gonna be compared to the time that we're gonna enjoy the rewards for faithfully following Jesus in suffering in the next life? What's the comparison there? Well, Paul says it's no comparison, right? So follow Jesus, embrace the suffering, hold on to him, stand in perseverance, because as you do, you're laying up for yourself a great reward in heaven. Let me see if I can drive this point home a little bit more. The third thing that Daniel reveals in this vision is that God will eventually deliver us from suffering. So our sin brings suffering, Satan brings suffering. But the third thing that we learn here is that God will eventually deliver us from our suffering. One of the key points here, and we're gonna see this repeatedly in the, the chapters to come, we saw it last week as well, is that while God allows his people to suffer, he only allows them to suffer for a set limited time. So I want you to listen to me today because I know, I know that many of you are suffering right now. I know you're going through difficult things. And if that's not the case right now, it will be the case in the days ahead. But whenever we find ourselves in the midst of suffering as God's people, we've always got to remind ourselves that God is only going to allow this to continue for a limited time, and then he is going to come and deliver us. It's one of the primary messages of Daniel. Now, this doesn't mean our deliverance will come as soon as we would like. Consider Daniel again. Next week, we're gonna see that Daniel was thinking God was going to deliver his people soon. And in a way, God would do so, but not nearly to the degree that Daniel thought. See, see Daniel thought that God was gonna restore his people right then, right now. And he was really, really looking forward to it. But what he finds out here in chapter eight is that not gonna happen the way that he thought it was gonna happen. You see, the people of Israel would continue in their rebellion, which would result in an extended period of God's discipline and finally lead to what we see here in chapter eight. Therefore, get this, the ultimate point for Daniel and for us in this chapter is that while God's deliverance will come, it might be a while before it comes and there is therefore a great need for perseverance. Did you get that? Listen, God's going to deliver us from suffering that's guaranteed. There is absolutely no doubt about it. However, that deliverance might not come today. It might not come tomorrow. It might not come next week. It might not even come in this lifetime. Daniel was never delivered from his suffering. Daniel never made it back home. Daniel never worshiped again in the temple. By the way, that was, as, as a Jewish believer, a faithful Jew, that was his greatest desire. That was the thing that he was looking forward to the most other than, what? What? 
faithfully following God no matter if he got to do that or not. And so what Daniel needs to understand and what he needs to hear at this point in his life is that there is a great need for perseverance, that he needed to play the long game. And friends, we have to learn to do the same. We need to play the long game. Can I just say this? The events of this week in our country should indicate to us that suffering and difficulty and persecution is on its way. We're gonna have to learn to play the long game. And listen, listen, young people, I might not be around to see the worst of it. I'm I'm sorry, this is not what you wanna hear, but I just gotta tell you, you're gonna see it. You're gonna feel it. And one of the reasons that we're going through the book of Daniel is because I know as your pastor, I need to help you to get ready for it. And you don't get ready for it when it comes. You get ready before it, before it gets really, really hot. And how do we get ready for it? We recognize that it's coming and we say, and we determine in our hearts that we are going to stand that we are going to persevere, that we are going to believe that God is going to rescue us and it doesn't matter how long it takes until he does that, we're gonna stand no matter what. And listen, this this is the kind of church that we all wanna be a part of. These are the kind of people that we all wanna be. I just wanna be honest with you, we aren't there. I don't know that I am there. I don't know that I'm there. We got work to do. All of us have work to do. And even if the persecution doesn't come, don't we all suffer in a lot of other ways? Relationally, any of you got relational suffering going on right now? With a spouse, a child, a neighbor? How about physical suffering? Dehabilitating, chronic physical suffering. How about a loved one that just passed away? How about just depression? Not just depression, how about depression? Some of you are really struggling with that. How about loneliness? How about looking at the fact that you might be single for the rest of your life, you feel that that's suffering. Maybe you're in a relationship where you feel like you've gotta be with that person forever and that feels like a lot of suffering. Now, now, <laughs> so, we, you know why we laugh? Okay, but let's get serious here for a second. Why, why are we laughing? Because it's true. It's true. And so one of the things that we also don't recognize here is, is a lot of times, like even in these situations with that other person, we think that the other person is the problem. When really the problem is us and our sin and the fact that Satan is working on our sin to cause us to suffer. Paul says in Ephesians 6, our, our battle's not against flesh and blood. It's not against that person. It's not against the cancer. It's not against the loneliness. It's not against the depression. It's not against the financial problems. Who's the battle with? It's our ancient enemy. Let me take you to 1 Peter chapter five for a moment. You don't have to turn there, we'll have it on the screen, but in 1 Peter five, uh, 
The Apostle Peter is writing 600 years after Daniel. But interestingly enough, he, he's writing to believers who are fighting the same battle that he was. And the same battle that the Christians, the Jews in 170 AD were going through. There was a new antichrist in town, the Roman ruler, and he was greatly persecuting God's people. And so Paul, or Peter says this to him, he says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your, your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Let me point out three things to you from this passage. I'll do them really quick. One, Peter assumes that Christians are going to suffer. It's just an assumption. It is going to happen. Satan is going to attack us. It was true in Daniel's day. It was true in Antiochus's day. It was true in Peter's day. And it's still true in our day. It'll be true until Jesus comes back. Satan is gonna attack us. Two, in the midst of our suffering, Peter tells us to be sober-minded, watchful, resisting, firm in our faith. In other words, he tells us to stand in perseverance. You know, by the way, there's some encouragement here. You know what the encouragement is? That when the devil attacks, we can defeat him. We don't, we don't have to be defeated. We can defeat him. Three, we're to stand in perseverance, get this, by holding on to the promise that after we've suffered for a little while, Jesus, who has called us to his eternal glory, will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. So I don't know who needs to hear this specifically today, but if you're suffering, if you're having a really, really difficult time, if you're thinking about throwing in the towel, do not do it. Persevere, hang on. Because Jesus, who's called you to his eternal glory, that's your destiny, that's where you're gonna end up. He is going to come and rescue you, confirm, establish you in the faith. Hebrews 10, 35 through 36 tells us this, therefore do not throw away your confidence. You thinking about throwing it away today? Don't throw it away. Why? Because it has great reward. For you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Let me give you a genuine quote, authentic quote from Winston Churchill. I believe it was during the midst of World War II when England was about to be done for. When they were about to be done for, Churchill said this, when you find yourself going through hell, keep going. When you find yourself going through hell, keep going. Now here's the deal. None of us in this life will actually go through hell. We won't. But there's a lot of times where it feels like we are going through hell, right? And so when you feel like you're going through hell, what do you do? You keep going. Let me tell you how you could do so. You can do so because Jesus actually went through hell for you. He literally went through hell for you. On the cross, Jesus experienced hell in your place so that A, you can know when you're going through hell, he will be with you. B, he will carry you through. And C, he will carry you through when hell is over to heaven. 
So if you find yourself going through hell, keep going. Stand in perseverance.